Today, I'm talking to Asia Orangio about early stage marketing, sending surveys, and dealing with growth challenges for indie hackers. Asia is the CEO of Demand Maven, and she helps founders go to market and grow their businesses. You'll hear strategies and tactics from someone who's done thousands of customer interviews and can help you figure out what's really going to drive your growth. Today's episode is sponsored by Acquire.com. More on that later. Now, here is Asia. Hey, Asia, and welcome to the show. Your expertise lies in helping companies go to market, and a lot of founders are pretty convinced they know what that looks like, what they should be doing. Can you share a memorable experience where finding this strategy, this approach, dramatically changed a company's trajectory? Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. How many stories can I tell in a short amount of time? Um, absolutely. Okay, so just for context, the, the work that I do, uh, I work with early stage companies, I work with growth, uh, growth stage companies, and I've also worked with like half a billion dollar companies like huge. Um, and at this stage, absolutely. Um, I've, I've worked with founders where they had it in their minds that they were going to build this product. And they were like, these are all the features that's going to be in it. And this is going to be who it's for we do a customer discovery project together and then their whole minds completely shift and completely change of like, Oh my God, the person I wanted to sell to is not going to buy what I was going to build. It actually needs to be this. Um, I've been in those situations where um, I've worked with founders who didn't even have a product yet. They, they had a concept and they needed, they needed to validate it um, or at least get a certain level of confidence. Cause you never can 100% validate anything, but get closer. Um, and then I've also, I've worked with founders who have had products, they've gone to market, um, maybe they got 10 customers, but it was like pulling teeth to get those 10 and they're feeling like something's missing, something's wrong and I can't figure out what it is. Is it the market? Is it us? Is it our positioning? And we do uh, like a qualitative you know, research project or qualitative insights project or a go-to-market project or whatever. And then they walk away with... Um, oh, it was my messaging this whole time, or, oh, it was, uh, I was targeting the wrong people. Um, we actually, so I was working with a company just recently there in the, uh, in the Gantt chart space, which there's a bajillion tools in the Gantt chart space, productivity in general, there's a ton, but Gantt charts, surprisingly, there's a lot also. And, uh, worked with a founder on a couple of different projects, um, did a growth audit, uh, and also looked at monetization and, um, one of the things that we discovered was uh, he he had all of these industries uh, that were buying the product. And then what we found was actually the construction industry loved Gantt charts. Apparently they, they paid more, they had better price sensitivity, like everything about them was just like way better. And uh, it was just so funny to hear the founder go like, I didn't realize one, that that was the vertical that, loved this the most and also that they would pay more and also that they did not care about half of the features on my roadmap. So he, so now he's like, he's like going through like an existential crisis of like, do I build this roadmap or do I not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who did, who did they build it for in the first place? Like did, did they have a completely different industry in mind? Well, uh, it wasn't as much industry as much as it was, um, you know, I mean, a, you know, a lot of a lot of early stage, especially bootstrap founders, they 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 have the features that they're just really excited about, and they're really right. close and dear to their heart. And they're like, I I want to build more widgets, or I want to go and build more of this, or I want to go build that integration because whatever. Or like, I like Kubernetes. I'm gonna go do something with that. Um, and so then what ends up happening is, you know, it, it becomes a passion project, but it doesn't always translate to revenue. And 
And um, being a bootstrap founder, you've got to balance both. Being a maker, you've got to balance both. Like what scratches the itch, but then also like what helps you make money. And it'd be best if it, you know, if both were aligned. Um, but really what it was, was the founder had a roadmap full of enhancements that he perceived as valuable. But when we did our um, monetization project, one of the things that came out of it was um, we do what's called um, a value preference analysis. It's a survey. But when we did the survey and then we analyzed the results, what he realized was all of the stuff that he was prioritizing, people didn't actually care about. They actually cared about all these other things. And it was harder and it took more effort and it wasn't as fun to him to build, but it was going to make him more money. <laughs> so he was so he was like, oh, man, I have to like totally change my roadmap now. And I was like, that's product management. Um, but, you know, it's that's the trade, right? That's so interesting because like from my own founder perspective, I think I would have trouble coming up even with the, the contents of a survey that was not biased by what I already think is important. Like how, how do you skip around that? Like how do you get the outside perspective for a founder like that? This is so, so, so common. And um, anyone who's listening out there and cringing, you are not alone. Everyone does it, even me. Uh, and I'm not even the like the builder. <laughs> um, okay, so usually... And, and this is going to sound so high level, but I'll try to give you like real examples as much as I possibly can without divulging, you know, like who this is about. But um, usually when when it comes to uh, surveys for the purpose of product management or surveys for the purpose of growth or marketing or what have you, um, the the natural tendency is to think like, OK, like what are all the questions that I want to ask um, and like what are all the answers that I want to get? And that is where you got to stop. Right. <laughs> like, like you're like, what do I want to hear? And that's like the total not, not right way to approach it. And this is really hard to do. And if you don't do a whole lot of research, like my whole life is quantitative insight and quantitative, like, yeah, quantitative analysis. It's qual and quant all the time, every day. That's like where I live. Um, and with qualitative, you really have to pause and you have to ask yourself, not what do I want to hear and not even really what do I want to ask customers because that comes after the very first question, which is what progress am I hoping to make? If you can, before you even jump to the what questions am I going to ask, if you just stop and say, what progress am I trying to make? Well, I, I really don't know what I should be charging. I would like to make progress in knowing what I should charge. Or I'm not really confident in my product roadmap. I would really like to know what features I should build. Okay, that's great. But then the next step is you're not then going to ask that question. <laughs> you're not going to write, what features should I build um, in your survey? You are then going to use a few different tools, um, one of which I can actually I can actually tell folks about. Um, I use it all the time. It's called MaxDiff. Um, MaxDiff is, uh, it, it's, a, it's a type of survey question that you can ask that's way better than the like, you know, rank feature one on a scale of one to five of most or least interesting to you. Rank feature number two on a scale of one to five. It's way better than that. Um, actually, what it is, is instead of asking people to rank things on a scale, what you do is you give them some list of attributes, categories. It could be features. It could be anything you can imagine, like some category of things that you want people to prioritize. And you say, out of this list, what's the most important to you and what's the least important to you? And then... You calculate, tally all of that up. Um, and what you end up with, if, if feature number one, maybe 20 people said it was most important to them, but then two people said it was least important. 
So great, that has a score of 20. So you subtract the most important, least important, but you do that across all of your features. And, and this, this is exactly what happened to this founder, but he discovered uh, all the stuff that he was like hoping to build, nobody really wanted. <laughs> they all wanted all the harder stuff. Uh, but then what gets really cool is if you ask uh, in the same survey, qualifying questions around like, who are you? Or like, what's your role? Or what's your title, industry, whatever. Um, you can actually segment that data and then you can discover, oh, these people want these things and these people want these things or, you know, whatever. Um, but that's that's the beginning of it. But most people, when they design surveys, they jump into the, what do I want to hear and what questions do I want to ask? But we, I always recommend like, you have to take a step back and you have to ask yourself from a business perspective, what progress are you trying to make? Um, because that's what's going to determine how you approach a survey if you launch in with, well, what do I want to know? That's still very intuitive. Don't get me wrong. Like, and, and you should totally do it if you know that you need information. I don't ever want to deter a founder from not sending a survey because they're not going to do it right. You should do it. Do it anyway. Do it bad. Get the information that you're going to need. You know, like just do it. Um, but you're going to get to a place where you're going to want to do it better, hopefully. Or you're going to hire someone like me to do it better. Um, but ideally, like it's the, okay, what do we actually want to accomplish with the survey? Because if we're going to send out a survey, Max, you're going to ask like 10 to 15 questions. You're going to get so many responses. Um, we need to maximize the potential of what this is going to do because, you know, you, depending on how many customers you have, you might, you might be overwhelmed and flooded with answers, but you also might not. And so you kind of want to maximize the opportunity that you have uh, to, to conduct the survey. Right. You you were just mentioning like qualitative, quantitative. So in a survey like this, that sounds very quantitative to me. People rank, you have the max stuff, you, you get like all the, the ranked numbers. Do you also ask for like qualitative questions? Like what else should I put in there? Or the, my question is mostly like, does it deter people from actually like filling out the survey if you make them think? Or do you just want their intuitive response? Sometimes. Uh, so we we try to balance... We, we try to lean and err more on the side of asking more like quantitative style questions. So things that people can select or click. Uh, but to be fair, though, um, if you have conducted a lot of qualitative research, then filling out answers, like kind of like pre-selecting answers for a survey actually becomes a lot easier because you already know, generally speaking, like, OK, like if I ask this question, I should expect to hear like this range of answers. Um, if you've never run a survey before ever in your life on your customer base, and maybe you don't know your customers as well, then um, having predetermined answers might give you skews that you might not um, you might not know because you're not going to know what you don't know. But then also um, you might not be able to totally trust. So if you if you're running a survey for the very first time, you've never run one before, um, and and maybe like you haven't talked as much to customers like in this way, not just about features, but about like you know. Like you haven't had as many conversations, I'll say. Um, then having a few more open-ended questions can actually be a really good way just to get a sense for like what would people say uh, as your first as your first pass. But then usually moving forward, like the more surveys you do, the more that you want to kind of keep it like you keep the open-ended stuff to a minimum if you can. Um, but to be honest, there's really no there's no hard and fast rule. <laughs> I've seen it all. <laughs> uh, there's no hard and fast rule. But what I will say though, is again, it kind it goes back to like, what are your goals? And also what context do you have? Because if you don't have as much context, then doing more open-ended stuff could totally work. Um, you're, you're not going to, it's not going to be very rich, but it will give you like hearing from the customer in the limited time and space that they have to answer you. 
Um, but then at the same exact time, though, we've run surveys for clients before. And some people came back with like essays, like, and you're just like, whoa, <laughs> it's like, it's like you did an interview almost <laughs> just depends. Um, but the, I will say the, the less context you have, maybe the more open ended questions can help. Otherwise, if, if you have a lot of context, then you can kind of guess like maybe what the answers could be. And then, you know, you throw it out there and see how customers respond um, or users or whatever. Yeah, it sounds like uh, it's it's nice in some situations when you have like a, a blue ocean kind of situation. But if you know exactly where you want to go, like if you've overcome your inhibition to know where you're going to go and you want to know where you're going to go, then maybe more the, the, the quantitative methods work. That's interesting. It's I, you can you can probably tell that I'm asking all these detailed questions, probably mostly for my own sake at this point, because I have I struggle sending surveys. I don't know what it is in me. I just don't want to bother people with the survey. I know it's a self-imposed limitation. And maybe you can help me out of this because I know it's important for me. I just started a new business. I'm, I'm building a, a voice messaging tool for, pod, for podcasts because I love podcasts and I love podcasts where people send messages like Seth Godin's Akimbo, right? You have people sending in messages, that kind of stuff. I always love this, but the tooling looks like it's from the 90s and function-wise also isn't like in the year 2024 yet. So I'm, again... Software engineer, feature think, right? I'm building this, but I want to know more about my prospects and about my future customers. But I don't want to send emails. Like, how can I overcome this inhibition to bother people with something that could be quite useful to them? Yeah, uh, I love this. Okay, this is interesting. So, I, I so I will say we we really only do surveys when we have a larger volume of customers. So, if you have a hundred plus customers, surveys are going to be your jam. The same is true actually for website surveys. So you can you can do website surveys as well. And if you're getting let's say five ten k visits a month, like you probably have enough traffic to do like a website survey. Um, but if you don't have a hundred customers, I would say interviews. Interviews are going to be your best friend. Um, I have actually completely changed my perspective on interviews in the last I'll say six months to a year. I used to be very hardcore, don't pay people, um, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. And I, because I've been testing this, uh, and also I've been working a lot with Bob Muesta. He's like co-architect of jobs to be done, blah, blah, blah. Um, incredible guy. Uh, but talking a lot and like working with Bob, I've learned um, the incentive doesn't actually matter as much. So all but to say, what I mean by that is, uh, I think you can get over the hump. By a couple of things. You're absolutely correct. It is totally a self-imposed limitation. And, and, and a lot of founders have this. It's not, it's one of the most common ones, actually. Even I have this. I have this about myself and my own business. Like, I really should be drinking my own champagne way more than I am and interviewing more founders. But even I have the self-imposed, like, I don't want to bother them. But what I what I can say from running thousands of customer interviews, um, for the people who you want to create value for it's never it's never too much to ask and and also most people are delighted they would love to talk to the ceo of you know a new upcoming small business um and you know help them shape exactly what they want because selfishly they want you to build what they want <laughs> um so i think that there's the mindset part of it but then the outreach the outreach is uh you know, I, I I think it's it's either an email or a LinkedIn message, depending on the context of of you know who you're talking to. Maybe depending on your industry, it's actually a phone call or a text. There are some industries that are like that. Um, 
But the good news is that you don't need hundreds of interviews. You really just need about 10 to 15. And and honestly, the first three to four are going to be eye-opening. And once you... I actually worked with a founder who... Um, he he was at the 8 to 10K mark MRR, and uh, he had never done research before. And he was in a similar space. He was like, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm terrified. I don't want to bother them. He had like 30,000 users and maybe like 500 paying customers. <laughs> um, and it was interesting because after the first two, he was like, okay, this is less scary. And, uh, and I ran them with him. So he actually ran the interview himself. I was with him. I was like coaching him through the process. But by the fourth one, he was like, this is awesome. I can't believe I waited so long to like to do this because he was like, I'm having so many ideas. Oh my God, like we should go build this and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, this is why we do this. It was great. Um, so I will say the first two, three, they're going to be weird, <laughs> especially if you're not used to it. But by the time you get to like the fourth and the fifth, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. Like, I can't believe I waited so long to do this. Um, and if you're feeling really, really introverted, never forget that you can do this with someone else. Like there are other people who can maybe run the interview for you and like you just like tag along. So there's also that option as an option, but yeah. Um, I think to make it also feel a little bit easier, you can offer an incentive. So some people will offer like a $50 gift card or hundred dollar gift card, something to sweeten the pot. So you don't feel like you're like really, you know, putting them out, but I guarantee you the people that you're building for, they, they are going to like, Assuming that you are out to create value, most people are going to be pretty open to chatting with you, um, especially if you are building something that is in their best interest. <laughs> yeah, you, you would want that to be uh, the case for most products being built, right? That's a, a win-win. There's a business going coming out of it, but also it, it's producing massive value for the people using it. That that brings me to uh, uh, something that you just said. Like you said, 30,000 people that are used to product, 500 paying customers. Who do you listen to? When you when you reach out to them, because those thirty thousand might become or twenty nine thousand nine hundred five hundred, right? They might become paying customers, but they're not yet. So, do you ask them questions, or do you ask questions of your already existing customer base? So, this is kind of where we get into the it depends territory, and the reason why it depends is because it depends on what we're what what is the progress we're trying to make, what is the outcome we're trying to achieve with whatever the research is. Um, traditionally speaking, when it comes to go to market. We need to pay more attention to people who are paying because people who pay money have made a real trade-off. If they never pay any money, they make no sacrifice. They make no trade-off. And it's not that you can't trust people who have never made a sacrifice or a trade-off. It's just if they've never made the trade-off of paying money, then everything is a hypothetical. You don't actually know. And it's just like you said, like they could become, but they, but they haven't. So what we try to do in those scenarios is Traditionally speaking, uh, the paying customer usually takes priority. However, there are some, there are plenty of use cases to do what we call audience research, people who aren't paying you money, but they fit the general profile or they could. So what we do in those scenarios is we try to find people who may not have made a trade-off to buy your product, but maybe they've made similar trade-offs. So maybe they might not have bought um, HubSpot, but they bought Salesforce. Uh, so like if you can find people who have made the trade-off, even if it wasn't for your product, if it was for something similar, that's a, that's an excellent, excellent space to play in where you don't want to play in is you don't really want to play in the sandbox of they've never made a trade-off even close to it. Um, it's not on their radar. They're totally unaware. They might've tried the product, but 
they can't like they don't have like a a perspective like for where to like fit you in and that's kind of where you want to be careful because it's really easy to get lost in the sauce with that but if you can talk to people who have made similar trade-offs so maybe they tried your product but they went to a competitor or um they've used or bought stuff like what you've like what you're providing in the past those are great people to talk to because it'll it'll give you a sense for like what direction do you need to go in or do you want to go in um but i would say paying customers definitely take precedence those are like their paying customers are worth their weight in gold because they've actually made a real trade-off. They, they, they've made an exchange and people who make exchanges uh, and also people who make exchanges and then churn, those are the people that you really want to talk to for sure. Yeah, it, it's certainly the, the presence of a budget <laughs> signals something that, you know, the absence of a budget doesn't. So that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for sharing this. So what's your position on freemium then as a business mm. model itself? Freemium, I would say... Um, I've, so I've worked with plenty of early stage and bootstrap companies. Um, and I, I would say, so I've been running Demand Maven now for almost, for actually for six years. February will be six years. I've been running awesome. Demand Maven, which is, thank you. Wow. Um, the first three to four, I would say we, we've exclusively focused on early stage and bootstrap companies. And freemium, I've got to say, is one of the toughest models to make work for bootstrap companies. I'm not against it. Uh, but I do think that you have to have a very, um, you have to have just an absolutely massive total adjustable market that has a willingness to pay. And also you as the founder, you have to have an incredible onboarding and activation experience, let alone go to market, go to market, you know, people, product channel, uh, people, product model channel. Yeah. Uh, and market itself, like, yeah, that aside, great. But product itself, when people sign up, get the value moment, become a customer. If that is not dialed in, freemium is so tough. And then on top of that, freemium is not a revenue model. It's an acquisition model. It does make acquisition easier, but I'm going to put that in finger quotes because while it makes it easier, it puts a lot more pressure on having an incredible product experience. And I've not seen as many scenarios where bootstrap founders are like equipped enough to be able to, to manage that well. You're going to need more product people, more developers. It, it creates, and maybe that's you. And maybe like you just like working all the time. But from what I've seen, there's very specific scenarios where it works extremely well. But a lot of the times they actually need to be a self-serve free trial. And, and maybe it's opt out. You know, it could be an opt out credit card scenario. Um, but that's really, I think, where most bootstrappers play. And I don't think freemium is going to work for everyone, to be honest. I know Patrick Campbell, I don't know if he would disagree or agree, actually. But I know that in the past that he has been like, freemium's great. Everyone should do freemium. <laughs> but I think it requires a lot of energy, capital. I actually think it requires more effort. Yeah. Um, and for, for Patrick in particular, right? You, you had ProfitWell, the, the free product, and, and everything was wonderful. But the high ticket stuff was on the other side, right? Price intelligently, right? They, it was compensated. Like it's not that ProfitWell needed to make money, it was compensated by massive consulting fees on the other side. So I, I wouldn't even call this a freemium. It's just like a, an, an anchor product, like a, a lead magnet, really. So I, I think he's, uh, he's an outlier in, in that regard for, for compared to all the other SaaS founders that I see. Because, it, I, and I think I needed to hear this just now, and a lot of people needed to hear this too. Because freemium is easy. It's easy to look at the number of users going up and thinking you have a, a case for revenue. 
even though the conversion, the onboarding, and the the stickiness, right, the retention of them is the hard part. So thanks for sharing that. Hmm. <laughs> it makes me rethink my pricing strategy, right? <laughs> but I guess that's what it is, right? It's all experimentation. You all need to figure out like where to go, where to start, how to like move on over time. We, we were we were just talking about niching and categories, particularly with the product category that, that you brought up, right? Do people in your product car- category have an alternative that they already use? Is there already budget being spent in the category you're in? You gave a talk at MicroConf about this whole niche versus like yeah well niche versus what is not a niche kind of uh, conversation i would like to dive into this a little bit because in the in the hacker space more and more we're being told and we are telling as people in the space niching is where it's at you niche down you find that thing and you find that place and you start there and maybe you grow out of it or you just stick with it and you build a presence in that field is that still a valid approach or is picking a niche the same thing as focusing on something Mm, like I'm to so, ask it. <laughs> I'm so glad you mentioned this. Uh, okay, yes. <laughs> also, good callback. Um, that was that was a that's one of my favorite talks actually. Um, okay, so yeah, you're gonna hear this all the time. Niche down, niche down. Um, okay, so there's focusing and then there's niching down. I'm gonna start with niching down, and I give this I give this example every time, and I it's it's based off of a company. That I'm not going to remember off the top of my head. Uh, but every time he's always like, I love that you keep using my company as this example. Um, he thinks, I think, I think he likes it. Uh, okay. So niching is like, let's say we're in the software category of CRM, customer relationship management, very popular, tons of software out there that's like this. Niching would be, I'm CRM for trucking companies. And niching is, the, is basically says, if you're a trucking company and you need CRM, you should use our product. Um, you are centering around a particular industry or a vertical. And if an agency came to you, you'd be like, we're, I mean, listen, like, we're not going to tell you not to use our software, but we're for trucking companies. Go away. And like, okay. You know, and if, if a SaaS company comes to you, listen, we're CRM for trucking companies, go away. Um, and that works for some people and for some founders. I think, I don't think it is, I'm not going to say it's bad advice. I think it's incomplete advice. I think there's many ways to go to market. Um, niching is one of them. And I think part of why, so context for why I think you hear this a lot is I think it's, um, I think it makes a very complex problem very easy because go to market is complex. There's a lot of variables. There's a lot going on. Um, niching makes it feel very easy. And I also think too, uh, at the same exact time though, like, if you if you don't plan on raising a bunch of funding, if you don't plan on like building like this whole big thing, you want to keep it lean. Um, niching could make a lot of sense for you, like just like personally. Um, there's this other approach though that I think is much more realistic and also gives founders much more freedom to explore business models that are more in alignment with them. Because niching, like if you don't like if so, is your CRM for trucking companies? But like if you don't like trucking companies, <laughs> then like you might run that business for two years and then be like, I'm out. (laughs) Um, So there's this other concept and this is the concept that most businesses use. uh, But it's one that I think a lot of bootstrap founders and early stage founders, um, uh, it's not, I don't think it's as common to think about, um, but it's definitely common for more established companies and it's called focusing. And what focusing says is, okay, sure. CRM for trucking companies, maybe that's where we start, but Maybe we build for trucking companies for one to two years and then we expand later into construction 
because trucking is cool, but like construction is where it's at. I don't know. I'm making this up. Um, and then maybe in another one to two years, maybe we expand again into um, manufacturing. And then maybe in another one. To, so so focusing basically says uh, the features, the content, the marketing, the channels, all the go-to market strategy, putting that in finger quotes, it's all going to focus on either that one vertical or industry, or it could also be software category because there are some that um, will focus like in various software categories over time. The best example of this in real life that I can give is uh, ConvertKit. So when Nathan Berry first started the company, he was like, email marketing is our software category. And we're going to focus on, um, I think it was specifically bloggers, food bloggers. Was it food bloggers? I should know the story by heart because um, I've studied them so much. But when he first started, I want to do email marketing for food bloggers. And then he expanded over time. And then uh, I think in, like, after like one to two years, he was like, okay, I'm now we are now going to expand into the audience of, I don't remember what it was, something else, like small business, like um, like websites that are like lifestyle blogs or whatever. And then every like one to two years, he would continue to expand. Um, he didn't niche forever. Could you imagine if ConvertKit was like, we're email marketing for bloggers forever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then it would never become the what billion dollar company that is today. I actually don't know if it's that big. Um, but it would never, if you can imagine like that, now, here's the thing, though, because what's really cool about being a founder is like you get to decide, like you get to decide what your chaos is. And I could imagine a scenario where if Nathan were just a different person, he could be like, yeah, I'm going to stop here. And that would be OK for him. You know, like I'm not going to shame anyone for not doing that uh, or, or you know, doing what they're doing. But I think, you know, Nathan was like, I want to do more. So he expanded, but he did it by by what we call focusing. And it's just OK. I've I, I understand this audience go to market wise. Now I am now going to expand and shift my focus on another audience, still going to cater to the old audience, but now I'm going to expand into the new audience. And he, that's how he built his business. So, so how do you uh, prevent yourself from falling prey to the shiny object syndrome? There's another interesting audience out there. How do you prevent overextending at that point? Yeah. Um, this, this is tough because as entrepreneurs, we are, um, we love a shiny object. Mm -hmm. I love a shiny object. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm like, like public offender number one on this. Uh, okay. So I actually go back to the story of, you know, the trough of despair of like, there's, uh, we all go through the same cycle. There's the like, Oh, we're so excited and we're super optimistic. It's going to go great. And then it's like, there's like a little bit of like, Oh no, this sucks. And then you're in the trough of despair and you're like, this is terrible. I was reading this uh, study, uh, this uh, this report, um, and whenever we get attracted to the shiny object, what happens is whatever track we're currently on, we're hitting the trough of despair. And the shiny object gives us that optimism again because we start the curve all over again. Oh, there's a new thing. Oh, I'm really excited about it. Oh my gosh, that's really cool. Oh no, this is way harder than I thought. Oh my gosh, this kind of sucks. And so what ends up happening is uh, we as entrepreneurs are wired for that. We're wired. That's why we're innovators. That's why we're, you know, breaking ceilings left and right. Um, but what ends up happening is sometimes we don't stay in the trough of despair long enough with the current track that we're on. And so a shiny object comes along and it's tempting. Ooh, you can have that feeling of optimism again if you just switch gears. Uh, and I, I think of that actually. And 
right when whatever I'm working on gets challenging, that's how I know I probably need to stick with it. <laughs> now, I do think, however, are there scenarios where like, if a thing isn't working, stop doing the thing. Um, I think at the same token, while we jump off of tracks very quickly, sometimes we can stay on them for way too long. And we're like, okay, you're beating this dead horse. And it's like, it's not the dog won't hunt as we say in the South. Um, but I think part of the game is knowing when you need to switch tracks and knowing when you need to stay on. Um, it's tough. And I'm not going to say I have a perfect answer even on this, but when it comes to go to market, at least what I can say is if, if you have, if you've done your research, if you've, if you've done your exploration for a particular audience, if you've, um, if you've like putting this in finger quotes, validated as much as you possibly can about expanding into a new market, then you can probably trust doing that expansion and also weighing its pros and cons and its trade-offs. Uh, assuming that you've done your research, you probably know what the challenges are going to be to an extent. You can probably predict like what some of that's going to be. And um, I think really smart business owners choose audiences that are the easiest for them to enter into, like easiest for them to segue into. And when they make very big strategic bets of, okay, this one's going to be really tough for us to do, but I think that we can do it. Um, knowing and like knowing that and having that context ahead of time before you double down on it uh is going to make that process easier but when that research is not conducted when when you when you don't do your due diligence when you're kind of just like ah, let's just do trucking companies why not and then you're like oh my gosh this kind of sucks and like it's really hard or whatever um then that's kind of where i would say if like that's just a lesson right it's just a life lesson but I think the more information that we can get ahead of time, it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be complete. But if we can get more context ahead of time, then that should help us make better decisions. And also, it'll also help you decide too. Um, yeah, like I'm ready to jump tracks. I'm ready to like jump into the new thing. And you'll hopefully feel much more confident about it. And then when it gets challenging, because it will, it absolutely will. Um, it won't be a surprise and you'll be a little bit more better prepared for it. Yeah, that, that kind of confidence is, is the problem that I see a lot in founders. I talk to several founders who are at that stage, who want to go into, into different verticals. Let's just call them that. But they're, they're afraid of several things. I think one of the, the biggest things is now I have to do everything twice. I need to cater to my old audience and speak to them in their voice, the lingo they have, right? The kind of jargon that they use and this new audience, which might be completely distinct, but equally interesting. Now I need to write blog posts for them and talk about their topics. Is, is that a thing, um, that, that can be done easier than just doubling all your efforts? Like, is there a way to keep the tone and voice consistent while going into new fields? What do you think about that? Well, I think, I think this is what's so interesting is that um, assuming that you have done your due diligence for one audience, uh, the thing is, is when you expand your, your go-to-market focus, I mean, yes, in theory with like a fully developed team and like you've got like a whole squad of people helping you with this. Yeah, in theory, like you'd have enough resources to cater to both. But I think as a bootstrap founder, like if you don't have that many resources, um, your old, like your existing customers and like the people that you're already attracting from that content, from that material, assuming it's evergreen, you don't have to keep producing it. It's if it's, if it's generating the value and if it's generating customers, maybe you need to update it like every six months to a year, depending on Google's rules and search and blah, blah, blah. Like maybe like depending on how you're acquiring the customers, like maybe you've got to update the campaigns like every once in a while. Um, but in theory, like, if, if, if you've created the system, the acquisition system to acquire an audience, you probably don't need to put as much effort into it to keep it going. 
maybe like a little bit here and there. Um, and I find depend. I'm going to say this depends. Like there are certain there are certain markets and industries where this is not the case. And if you're off, you're off, and like you need to like <laughs> get it back together. Um, but I think I I find it's if if you create the system and it's consistently generating things and it's continuous, then you don't have to. It doesn't require as much effort to keep the wheel going, and you can stretch into something else. And it and it won't feel like a stretch. It'll just feel like you're just shifting focus. Um, You'll need to remember, of course, every six months to a year to like go back to that old thing and like, okay, like, is anything amiss? Um, but for the most part, it should be, it should be relatively easy to build a new system. And I'm not gonna say it's easy. It's straightforward. It's relatively a little bit more predictable, especially again, if you've, if you've done your research, if you've explored that audience enough. Yeah, I, I like the idea of having a process that you can slightly adjust and then use the exact same process for a different audience. I think that that is a mental model that I can work with, right? Where it's, okay, this serves these people. Let's just tweak a couple of screws here and there, and then it can also serve these others. What what it immediately brings to mind to me as a, I guess, self-imposed solopreneur is that this will probably require more people to help me with because I am only an expert in a couple of fields but if I want to go into a different industry, I need somebody who can, from the start, speak the language of these people. Do you do you think this is a, a requirement of that shift to get help from outside, or or can can you kind of get there yourself and it might just take a bit longer? What 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 would you mm. choose there? Mm, that's interesting. So my first thought was, you technically don't need to hire someone who already speaks that language. Uh, I I would actually wager that most so if you get marketing help, for example, um, depending on the type of marketing help, most marketers aren't going to be well-versed in your industry at all, but they're going to learn by voice of customer, by qualitative research, by like talking to people and talking to customers and blah, 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 do, like conducting their own insights and conducting their own research. Um, that's how marketers kind of learn the language. But uh, so my first thought was, oh, I mean, technically you don't necessarily need someone who comes from that world. Um, if you hire someone good, that's relatively uh, trainable slash discoverable. Like you can figure that out. Um, but what I do think is even more interesting is the concept of expanding like your team, even if it's like a contractor or freelancer and, uh, you have like, this is absolutely possible. Like it's, I've seen this a a bajillion times where, um, there's like a solo founder and he's got like a part-time engineer who helps him with the product. And then he's got like two to three writers and social folks and like, and they're, they're part-time, they're not full-time. Um, and you know they found them. They found their resources like using Fiverr, Upwork, uh, sometimes even like LinkedIn. And you can totally build that very nimble team. And things are very cyclical. The hardest part is going to be, of course, the hiring. <laughs> Who do you hire? Uh, how do you know if they're good? That's kind of that's where it gets hard, and that's where it gets that's where it gets tricky. But what I will say though is, it's another skill. It's a muscle. Once you um, there's all kinds of guides you can read, but nothing beats the experience. So once you gain this experience, you'll learn over time, what does experience look like? What does great look like versus versus not? There's, um, I know you didn't ask this question, but I, I feel compelled to say it anyway, uh, because I do think it's really interesting. But uh, Nathan Lotka actually mentioned this at a SaaS doc talk once. Um, and he mentioned a process where the way that he finds talent is um, he he puts out a job like on Fiverr. He hires five to six people to do the same job. And then he just sees like, what's the quality level? 
Uh, and that gives him a gauge of, oh, okay, I can see like what the quality level is. Um, and then he just, he picks his favorite one. And then he just runs, runs washes and repeats and it's Fiverr. So there's going to be a range of prices and but that's how he does it. And he does that for everything. Literally that is a great every job. approach. That is awesome. I, you know what? I've seen this uh, coming from a completely different field. I'm a, I'm a hobby miniature painter. So I paint tiny figurines because that's just a hobby of mine that I had since childhood. And there's a, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, you, you should see the backside of this office because it's full of paints and brushes and stuff. But yeah, that's, that's really, that's what I do to unwind and just, you know, get into a space that is not completely occupied with just coding all the time. And in that community of, of YouTubers around that hobby, there are a lot of people who hire like 10 people on Fiverr or whatever to paint their figurines for them. And then they create content out of this, just checking the different levels of skill and the different price sets. So there, there is something to be said about like finding somebody who's good by just like setting them up against a couple other people and comparing. I think that's an interesting way of hiring. It kind of does reinforce kind of the global north south thing with the the pricing. Uh, you know, the the, the problem that um, people in the countries that have really really low wages and you know the purchasing power parity is extremely low. They do a lot of work for very little money, but it 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 does it does make sense to uh, to try this out like would you would you outsource all of these things like is, is that something with, my, my question really is like how much does the founder need to be involved in this that's really what it is because you were talking so much about customer interviews and all that in the beginning and it's like yeah that's something i need to do to to see the vision of this but when when it comes to creating content or marketing strategies like how much involvement does a solopreneur slash small team leader small ceo really need to put in there yeah that's a that's a great question and it's a tough one Okay, so what I will say is if you think about if you think about your time horizon of, of a year, if if you did 10 very high quality customer interviews a year, you would be beating literally all of your competitors, every single one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I know that because I probably worked with them. Um, but if you but if you think about can you do 10 interviews in a year, that doesn't feel too bad, right? Um, especially if it's like the first couple of weeks of the year. But I would say if you just did that, uh, which will require a lot of involvement from you because you're going to have to source them, you're going to have to reach out to them, you're going to have to actually talk to the customer. But I, I, I guarantee that if you were to do that process, it would energize you for the next six months at least. And in terms of like how you would be thinking about like, okay, well, what marketing do I need to put out? What should my messaging be? That you're going to get so much clarity just from doing that. Um, the book I'm going to recommend to everyone listening is The Mom Test. Rob Fitzpatrick makes interviewing very, very, very straightforward. Um, I cannot think of a better resource for bootstrappers or indie hackers or anything like that. Like it, like truly the one of the best. Um, but I, I guarantee that if you do that, when we think about the year time horizon, seems pretty small. Um, the level of involvement, however, on an ongoing basis, does ultimately depend on how experienced your resources are. If you have budget to spend, uh, I would highly recommend investing more in your resources. Um, if you don't have much have us have as much budget to spend, keep in mind that the quality of the marketing or whatever it is that you're putting out there might not be as good. Therefore, will require more of you. But the thing is, is that if you don't know what great looks like then it is what it is. Like, you're not going to notice anyway. Um, but what I can say, though, is if like, so let's say you're at the 45 or 40k MRR mark, and you're at the place where like, you can hire resources. Um, but you're like, you're torn, like, do you need someone experienced? Do you need someone not experienced? 
this is where I, I, I would say it's going to it's going to very much depend on what what is your comfort level? Um, what trade offs are you willing to make? Because you can hire someone who's maybe less experienced, but much cheaper. Um, but the trade off will be they're going to look to you for all the answers. Uh, if you don't like marketing, you're probably going to have to answer a lot of marketing questions and it's, it's going to feel very uncomfortable. Um, and otherwise, you're going to have to figure out how to level them up. So can you afford courses? Can you afford training? Um, I recommend Reforge to everyone, like literally everyone, because it's so affordable, like compared, like based off of what you get. Um, but that's kind of one of the trade-offs and knowing that you're never probably like this person, unless they're just going to really knock your socks off, they're probably not going to be your CMO. So, cause you're not paying CMO money. Right. Um, that's one of the hardest decisions to make. And I've got a couple of clients in this boat now. Um, you know, they've, they have an incredible marketing team. They love their marketing team. Uh, but they but they really need a VP of marketing, but they're just not quite at the place yet where it makes sense to afford that. So the trade off is, OK, well, that's OK. Um, yeah, love your team. That's great. Uh, let's get them some training. Let's get them some like advising. Let's get them some coaching. Like let's like if if we can't afford a VP of marketing, that's fine. There's other ways to level up your skill um, and to level up your team. The downside is it will require more of you, assuming that you care. You might not. <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay. Like, I, I want to, I want to make sure anyone who's listening is not like feeling guilty about like, Oh man, I really don't care about that. Like, that's okay. I believe in like running your business, how you want to run it. Like, and, and if you want to improve it and if you want to get better at certain things, great. Like that's where you can hire other people. You can hire resources. You can, you know, get consultants, whatever. Um, but if you're like, I'm never going to do that, Asia, like that's, that's, that's totally fine. I'm cool with it. I like, I applaud it actually. <laughs> what, what do you think of hiring like fractional uh, people for those kind of roles? Like, because yeah. like they're expensive in the full role, but in a fractional couple days a week, what do you think of that? I am biased because I have been fractional. Um, I actually, I helped a company go from 13 K MRR to uh, 2 million ARR. And they just exited. They just exited um, for a lot of money, <laughs> for so much money. It was really cool. And but I was fractional. I wasn't. I wasn't that expensive either. It was. Um, uh, to be fair, they they did have some marketing resources, but they they didn't have a single full time marketing person until this year. And I've been working with this company for a very long time. Um, and I mean, it's impressive. Like they were extremely lean, very very lean. Um, so I think that there are scenarios where it works and it makes sense. I think it's very, very contingent on the uh, ultimately the founder and the CEO. Um, because I think if the expectation is that this person is just going to take marketing off of your hands forever and you're never going to think about it, that's that's never the case. I can't think of a single scenario where as the founder, you never think about marketing unless you have a co-founder who's the marketer. Um, and then you, maybe you never, you actually just never think about marketing. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I think if the expectation is that this fractional person is just going to take it all off of your hands and you're never going to have to think about it. I don't think that that's realistic. Um, the other thing too, is that it depends on the nature of just how fractional this person is. Are they doing execution? Are they not doing execution? Do they, do they have budget or resources to get the execution? So in my case, um, I wasn't doing it all. Uh, I, but I was able to hire writers. I was able to hire like, um, freelancers to just come in and do some of the execution stuff that I needed. And then also the CEO himself did a lot of stuff. Um, so I think if there's a very clear expectation for 
how are we going to divvy up the work, then I think it could work extremely well. And I think like, I mean, this, this company like really made out super well. Um, doesn't work for everyone though. I think that there are scenarios where if there is budget and they need a full-time person and like, it's really obvious that they do, then they just need to hire full-time. Like let's, but I do think that there are some scenarios where um, fractional makes a lot of sense for maybe more executive leadership. Um, I'm essentially like a chief growth officer or CMO coming in and like, okay, here's what you got to do. You got to go and do all these things. And like, I can help you do some of it, but like we need other people to also do it. <laughs> Can't be all of Asia. Right. Um, those are scenarios that work really well. I know Amanda.tv dot has an opinion on this that I thought was really, really, really interesting. And I'm not going to remember exactly what she, what she said about it. Um, but I remember seeing this on Twitter and I remember agreeing with a lot of what she said. Um, but there are scenarios though, where fractional can make sense. There are a lot of scenarios though, where it doesn't. And I think like, I think if you can afford full-time help that's experienced, get it. Um, but that, that comes down to like, how good are you at hiring? Um, demand maven. So my own business, it took us years to get good at hiring, uh, researchers. It took us years, it took us a lot of trial and error. Um, but now that we know like, Oh, this is what the process is. It's like, it's so easy. Hopefully you don't have to go through that with marketing. That would suck. Um, but I know for me, cause we mostly work with a lot of contractors and freelancers. So we, we do a lot of hiring like a few times a year. Um, but hopefully that's not the case for, for you for marketing. Cause that would, that would not be fun. But I will say though, it's a muscle. Um, oh, for sure. Like like all things business, right? You you get to experiment and figure out the, just the right way to lift the weight, and then be, lifting it becomes much easier, right? Let's right. use that weird an, uh, analogy here. But I what what I get from you, what I what I heard you just say was that fractional hires are, shouldn't be your first hires. <laughs> That's really what I'm getting out of this. You should get like makers and and people who like will get their hands dirty and in the weeds, even though they might not be the most experienced ones. They're not no, not the most expensive ones, but like. At the first, the first hire should not be a person that needs other people to help them do the work. That's yes. what I'm getting out of this. Totally. And I, I, I also think too, um, there's a lot of models that I've seen where maybe the team is very junior, but there's like a fractional executive leader. Um, that can work really well, uh, depending on how much management the team needs. That can work extremely well a lot of the times. Um, but sometimes, um, so a fractional person, and when I say fractional, like I'm assuming that they're like 10 to 15 hours a week. Sometimes though, having an advisor. So there's a lot of companies that I advise. Uh, and I'm maybe like, like it's like a couple of hours a week, if that. And that can be extremely helpful because a good advisor, depending on like what they're advising in, for me, it's usually growth or marketing or both. Um, I'm able to like cut through the chaff like really quickly, like don't prioritize that project. That's going to be a waste of your time. Do this instead. And then they're like, oh, okay, great, 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 great. Can you review our work? Yes. Like, yep, this all looks good. You know, change these things. Okay, go off. And then, then they go and they do the thing and then they come back and they're like, okay, we've got more stuff. <laughs> um, so, so if you can't, uh, yeah, executive level fractional stuff, I wouldn't recommend that for super early stage. Um, but advising could be extremely beneficial because it could kind of like, like working with someone who's either been through it or worked with a bunch of companies who have been through it, that could be awesome for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I do that for a couple of people, like more in the, the technical space, but like it's a call a month or something and just like keep people in the loop, keep reshuffling priorities that may have like gone out of proportion or something. I think that's that's great. Effectively mentorship on a level, right? Like for many founders, there is this mentorship aspect to it as well, where it's not just like advising on the business, but also on the personal development of the founder. That That's kind of where I come in, like a little bit like intersectional there. But yeah, that, that, sounds, that sounds like a, a much smarter move than just hiring somebody who may really not be the right hire. Wow. Thank you so much for for sharing all all of your insights and your personal experience here too. That is incredibly uh, valuable. Like it's really nice to to hear the distilled knowledge from all these projects and all these, you know, these these surveys, these conversations, thousands of interviews. Like when do you get to talk to a person that actually has all this insight? So, thank you so much for sharing this. I bet Everybody listening right now will be very interested in following you and learning more about you. So where would you like them to go to stay in touch with you? Yeah. Okay. There's a few places. Um, I hang out the most these days. I still call it Twitter. Uh, yeah, I me still too. Hang out. Me too. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> uh, there's also LinkedIn. And then um, you know, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. If you do, just leave a message that's like, hey, I heard you on the podcast. Uh, otherwise, content-wise, so I have a newsletter called The Work. And it is where I publish all about uh, how to do the work, like this really hard, muddy growth work that's like really confusing. Same thing for go to market. And um, my my whole thing is how can I give you practical examples of doing a max diff survey, um, how to interview customers about like you know potentially buying a product, like how do you do that? So my whole thing is how do I give practical advice about the work that is required. Um, so that can be found on demandmaven.substack.com and the work newsletter. Uh, I try to publish every week, but I got, uh, I actually got sick last month, so it has not been every week, but, uh, this year I'm going to try to do, I'm going to say at least 40 posts this year. So not the whole year, but at least 40. Um, that's my goal. That's a that's a sp- spectacular goal. And if anybody needed any evidence that you're good at marketing, I think the last sixty seconds will convince them that you're really good at this. <laughs> you're, you're spectacular. Thank you so much for talking to me today and sharing all of that. It, it was really really insightful. Thank you. Thank you. This was a pleasure. Had a blast. Appreciate it. And that's it for today. I will now briefly thank my sponsor, Acquire.com. Imagine this. You're a founder who's built a really solid SaaS product. You acquired all those customers and everything is generating really consistent monthly recurring revenue. That's the dream of every SaaS founder, right? Problem is you're not growing for whatever reason. Maybe it's lack of skill or lack of focus or lack of interest. You don't know. You just feel stuck in your business with your business. What should you do? Well, the story that I would like to hear is that you buckled down, you reignited the fire, and you started working on the business, not just in the business. And all those things you did, like audience building and marketing and sales and outreach, they really helped you to go down this road, six months down the road, making all that money. You tripled your revenue and you have this hyper successful business. That is the dream. The reality, unfortunately, is not as simple as this. And the situation that you might find yourself in is looking different for every single founder who's facing this crossroad. This problem is common, but it looks different every time. But what doesn't look different every time is the story that here just ends up being one of inaction and stagnation because the business becomes less and less valuable over time and then eventually completely worthless if you don't do anything. So if you find yourself here, 
already at this point, or you think your story is likely headed down a similar road, I would consider a third option, and that is selling a business on acquire.com. Because you capitalizing on the value of your time today is a pretty smart move. It's certainly better than not doing anything. And acquire.com is free to list. They've helped hundreds of founders already. Just go check it out at try.acquire.com slash Arvid, it's me, and see for yourself if this is the right option for you, your business at this time. You might just want to wait a bit and see if it works out half a year from now or a year from now, just check it out. It's always good to be in the know. Thank you for listening to The Bootstrap Founder today. I really appreciate that. You can find me on Twitter at Avid Kahl, A-R-V-A-D-K-A-H-L. And you find my books and my Twitter course there too. If you want to support me and this show, please subscribe to my YouTube channel. Get the podcast in your podcast player of choice, whatever that might be. Do let me know. It would be interesting to see. And leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. It really makes a big difference if you show up there because then this podcast shows up in other people's feeds. And that's, I think, where we all would like it to be, just helping other people learn and see and understand new things. Any of this will help the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day and bye-bye.